The second reading is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have been differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the new covenant this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup, For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When you are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined, so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers... When you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Thanks be to God for the reading of his word. If you're into dieting, you may recognise the phrase, you are what you eat, from the Channel 4 programme that ran about seven or eight years ago. It was a phrase that was popular back in the 60s when people were urging people uh, to move away from junk food to organic food. It was a big health thing. And in the 20s and 30s, someone called Victor Lentlar promoted the catabolic diet and published a book in 1942 entitled You Are What You Eat, How to Win and Keep Health with Diet. And the earliest known occurrence of the phrase in print is found in a 1923 advertisement for beef in the Bridgeport Telegraph, which says 90% of the diseases known to man are caused by cheap foodstuffs. You are what you eat. The idea goes back further than that into Europe. In the 19th century, Ludwig Feuerbach wrote that man is what he eats when he said in a pun in German, der Mensch ist, was er ist. He is what he eats. And before that, in a book entitled The Physiology of Taste, a Frenchman, Bria Savarin, wrote, Tell me what you eat, and I will tell you what you are. 
There's clearly a big connection between what we eat and the kind of people that we are. We are affected by diets. And many of you into, into this kind of stuff will know that you know, if you eat the wrong kind of food, it depletes and saps your energy, whereas if you eat the right kind of food, it keeps you alert and gives you energy and all that kind of stuff. We have a growing awareness of that as, as time goes by. But equally, what we eat says something about who we are. Our choice of foodstuffs expresses something of our character, our personality, our views and our ideas. What we eat both affects us and says something significant about us. So what about this? This bread, this wine. What effect does it have on us? What does it say about us? That we eat bread and drink wine in Jesus' name. Ever since Jesus told his disciples on the night before he died that they should remember him in this way, Christians have done just that. So what does it say about us? What difference does it make to us? And over the centuries, there has been huge controversy over what significance should be attached to the bread and the wine. When Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, what did he mean? Was he speaking literally? Catholics would say he was. The bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Christ as we eat and drink it. That's the doctrine of transubstantiation. But many Protestants have a very high view of the bread and wine. Martin Luther spoke of the real presence of Christ's body and blood in, when and in, with and under the sacrament without suggesting the bread and wine needed to be changed in any way for that to be the case. And in some Anglican churches today, a bell is rung as the host is held up to signify that something significant happens as the priest prays that the bread and wine would become the body and the blood of Christ. And that's why in Anglican churches you get a communion wafer which melts on the tongue and a tiny sip of wine so you don't drop crumbs of the body of Christ anywhere and you don't spill any of it back. For them it is very, very important. And some are appalled, actually, by the way in which we just have a loaf of bread and what's left over is, well, given to the ducks or whatever. For them there's something quite difficult to accept about that because they have the view that the bread actually is something holy as the body of Christ. It's one of those areas where Christians don't see things quite the same way. Baptists traditionally have quite a low view of communion. We would say the bread is just bread and the wine is just wine, or even just grape juice here. And these things do no more than symbolise the body and the blood of Christ. And that was a view that was deemed heretical enough at times to send some people to the stake for holding it. But if bread and wine are symbolic of the body and blood of Christ. That doesn't make them any the less meaningful for us. Paul tells the Corinthians they better be sure to discern the body when they eat the bread because if they don't do so, that's why some of them are weak and ill and some of them have died. They were eating and drinking without paying significance to what they were doing. The meal that should have been a remembrance of Christ had turned into a travesty. The bread and wine and their significance all but forgotten in a, in a snap-up meal provided by some of the wealthier members of the church for their bodies, which was all but over by the time the slaves got off duty and came along and they didn't have any food of their own to bring and they got there to find it all gone. Some people had overeaten, some people were drunk and they came having nothing. They were left feeling hungry and unhappy and left out. And Paul rebukes the church for their disregard for their fellow members, for the way in which the focus of the meal had been lost, and for the way it had become self-indulgent for them and for their cronies. If you're hungry, eat at home, he says. 
Make sure you don't lose the point of the meal. And some people think it was specifically the situation of those who were left marginalised and excluded that Paul was describing when he told the Corinthians to be sure to discern the body. Because the way in which they celebrated the meal wasn't just denying the significance of the bread representing the body of Christ, they were ignoring the body of Christ in the sense of the fellowship come together to remember Jesus. He says, the bread which we break, is it not a sharing together in the body of Christ? So we who are many are one body because we all share in the one loaf. As we all share together in a single loaf of bread which represents the body of Christ, we express the truth that we all share in the body of Christ which is the church. Communion expresses our belongingness to each other as well as our belongingness to Christ. That's why when we, we eat the bread, we remember that we, we, you know, we are members of the body. When we drink the cup, we all drink it together to express our fellowship with each other. And so because we, we belong to each other when we, when we share the bread and wine, to exclude people from that, or to mistreat people in that context, or to disregard them as being of no account, is a travesty of what the meal is all about. Because we come here together, all of us, People saved by grace. None of us better or worse than anybody else. All of us united together as members of the one body. This meal expresses our fellowship with each other as well as our fellowship with Christ. And eating and drinking is to be taken seriously. Paul says we should examine ourselves before we eat and drink to make sure that we don't eat and drink in an unworthy manner and so end up profaning the body and blood of the Lord. That's a tricky one. He doesn't actually spell out what it means to eat or drink in an unworthy manner, which can leave us feeling a little bit uncertain. It's wrong to suppose, I think, that this means we shouldn't take communion if we have things on our conscience. Some people say sometimes, I don't feel good enough to take communion. Duh, the whole point is that we're not good enough. That's why Jesus died. That's why the body and blood are here for us. His body broken so that we might be forgiven. His blood shed so that we might be cleansed. And it's not a matter of us being good enough or in a right place. We come because we know that we are people in the wrong. We come because we know that we need forgiveness. We come because we know that we stand in need of God's grace. The whole point is that we're not good enough. The whole point is that here is a remedy for those who come with things on their conscience. If we were good enough, Jesus wouldn't have had to die for our sins. But in receiving the bread, we accept that yes, we have done wrong, but Jesus' body was broken for me. And it was my sin he bore on the cross. There is bread there for us to eat because we need forgiveness. And we eat the bread not to say, well, I'm all right, I'm good enough, I've done okay this week, but to admit that we have failed. But to say as well that we trust that in Christ our sins are forgiven and he is the one who puts us right with God. And part of eating the bread worthy is to recognise the significance of what we're doing when we eat. 
And it's the same with wine. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And the reason there needed to be a new covenant was that the first covenant relied on God's people keeping his laws. And the whole of the Old Testament is the account of how they failed precisely to do that. So God promises a new covenant. He says he will write his law on our hearts rather than on tablets of stone so that he himself will motivate us and enable us to do what is right. I will be your God, you shall be my people, he says. You will all know me from the least of you to the greatest and I will forgive your sins and put out of my mind the wrong things you have done. So again, the wine is there for people who need God's grace who need God's forgiveness. It is a meal that brings God's grace to guilty people. And in a sense it does change us. Eating and drinking expresses our faith that Christ died for us. And as we eat and drink we are reassured that Christ gave his life in love for us and we are forgiven and renewed by his grace. Yet, having said all that, Being forgiven doesn't mean that we are free to do as we like with no thought for the consequences. We shouldn't fall into the mistake of thinking that God's grace is a license to sin with impunity. I can do what I like because God's grace covers it all, it really doesn't matter. As we ask for forgiveness, there needs to be a deep-seated recognition that the thing we are asking forgiveness for is wrong. And it shouldn't be in our lives. There needs to be a genuine request for God to change us and make us more the people he wants us to be. And that doesn't mean overnight perfection. It doesn't mean that there is a limit to the number of times we can keep coming back and asking for and receiving forgiveness for the same sin. God doesn't have a three or a a 33 or 103 strikes and you're out policy. His grace is always there as often as we need it and come back for it. But part of taking communion and receiving forgiveness involves confessing sin as sin. Oh, this is wrong. I admit it's my doing. I accept my responsibility for it. Please forgive me for it. Take away the desire to do it. Release me from it. Change me. If we are forgiven, there is a sense in which sin does not matter in that Christ has released us from condemnation but there is a sense in which it does matter because it it shouldn't be there in our lives. And part of taking communion is admitting that it's wrong and it's not part of God's will or purpose for us. And Paul makes this point rather forcibly at the start of chapter 10. He draws on the idea that the bread and wine are spiritual food and spiritual drink and makes the point that the Israelites travelling through the wilderness after their liberation from Egypt also ate spiritual food in the form of bread from heaven and they drank spiritual drink rather fancifully perhaps suggesting that when Moses struck the rock to give the people water to drink in the wilderness it was the same rock he struck both times because it kind of trundled round the desert after them and that rock was Christ it's not an idea that we can relate to very easily when the stories of the Old Testament were retold and adapted in Aramaic there was a legend that the Israelites were followed through the desert by a mobile well and Paul takes up and adapts these traditions But we shouldn't get so hung up over the story or the way it's told that we miss the point. And the point is that the Israelites ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink and in some way, shape or form as they did so, they connected with Christ. 
But the shocking news that Paul has for the Christians in Corinth is that they never made it to the promised land. But their bodies littered the wilderness. And what made God so cross with them? Well, those things that were so prevalent in the church in Corinth and should not have been. They indulged in pagan revelry. They slept around. They failed to trust God. They grumbled all the time. Paul makes the point that their story serves as a warning to us. We can never say it doesn't matter how we live. We can never be glib about sin. We can never be complacent. Because that will land us in trouble as it did then. So don't think you can just sin with impunity. Temptation is to be resisted, trusting in the grace of a faithful God. This meal counts sin as sin and recognises its wrongness, but recognises as well the truth that Christ has dealt with it. It doesn't minimise or justify sin or say it doesn't matter. It shows it matters a huge amount, but shows that Christ has dealt with it as well. And as we eat and drink, recognising that Christ gave his life for us, the challenge is there for us as well to live our lives for him. He alone is our saviour. He gave his life for us. He alone is our Lord. He's the one we live for. Paul was actually really unhappy that some of the Corinthian believers would celebrate communion in church on a Sunday and then have a slap-up meal and the knees up in a pagan temple midweek. You really shouldn't be doing that, he says. When you eat the bread and drink the wine, you have a share in Christ. If you eat and drink in a pagan temple, whether you believe that they're real or not, you are expressing fellowship with demons, and and you can't do that. You can't do that. This is a meal that expresses commitment as well as communion. The bread and wine show that God is totally committed to us as his people, to love us, accept us, forgive us. And we have the assurance that because he gave his son for us, we are infinitely precious to him. We remember that truth every time we eat the bread and drink the wine. But equally, this meal is about expressing our devotion to Christ and to each other. We declare we have no other saviour. We put our trust completely in him. We have no other Lord. We serve Christ and Christ alone. We share the bread with people to whom we are committed as members together in the body of Christ. This is what this meal says about us. It expresses the core of our faith and it brings us back to the centre of the good news. Sinners as we are, God forgives us and enables us to share in the body of Christ. We are bound to God and to each other in a covenant of love and commitment. We do this at Jesus' invitation in memory of him. It's the core of the good news and our identity as those who trust in him as Lord and the Saviour.